Welcome to the Open Paddock Rallycast presented by Oz Rally Pro. This is episode number 114, and in this show, it's part one of a chat we had a couple of weeks ago with ARA Competition Director Preston Osborne. He tells us what he and his team learned over the 2021 season and details the new rule changes for 2022. So grab a nice, snowdrift-chilled beverage from the virtual rally pub we call The Rallycast. Before we chat with our guests, here's some bits from what's in the news since our last episode. Barry McKenna and Leon Jordan have pulled out of the Snowdrift National Rally at the last minute this week. This should make the overall championship that much more exciting as they would have been clear favorites for the overall win. Brandon Semenuk is still there with the new co-driver. Could give him a little bit of a jump start to the championship for him, but there's definitely a couple of R5s out there that are going to prove an equal challenge, I think, especially at an event where power is not the deciding factor. Our earlier guest, Kyle Tilly, made his formal partnership announcements that we had to cut from our podcast because it was a bit too early. He's now got support from Ford Performance and M Sport, and that includes a few WRC events including Rally Sweden, which will be in another week. And he's getting a brand new Fiesta Rally 2 Evo, the Evo edition of the newest version of the Rally 2 car, the R5-based machinery. And he's going to get that uh, as soon as it comes off the line, one of the first ones in a couple of months. And a brief update on Ken Block and Alex Gelsimino, who are competing out at the East African Safari Classic. Looking at the uh, results so far out there on the EWC results website, they're sitting way down in 21st. They ended up having over two hours of penalties because of a missed note, unfortunately, by Alex. He claimed responsibility, raised his hand. Apparently, they ended up breaking a ball joint, I think it was, on the car. And after a compression, that unfortunately made them pull off the side of the road for a good long time, needing the uh, team's help before they get moving again. Although they've been still getting stage times up in the top five, they've also been having some issues with punctures. It's definitely a different kind of rallying. They're learning from it. It's great to see them still out there competing on the great adventure that is East African Safari Classic. The imagery is just amazing. So if you haven't been following, just go to their feeds uh, on their Facebook or their Twitters and look at the imagery. It is just amazing. And then if you listen to our friends on the Absolute Rally podcast in the UK, they chatted with Americans Sean Johnson and Alex Kiriani about their uh, fourth place finish in class and 11th overall at Monte Carlo. The big news from that episode is that Sean's longtime supporter isn't able to contribute at the level they were previously, so their schedule is reduced for the season. The pair are actively looking for additional funding as they uh, steadily improve their pace and performance on the stages. So if you know anyone with deep pockets that's looking to uh, support the only pair of Americans currently competing in the world stage, reach out to them because we definitely would like to see them do more. And back to Snowdrift, make sure that you keep an eye on the regional overall and the open two-wheel drive classes. These tend to be some of the closest competition that we see all year long, especially at Snowdrift. Another one we're going to be keeping an eye on at the event is young Patrick Grushka, son of Art Grushka. We talked to him last year, and this year he's going to be competing for the first time in his dad's Beast of the Mitsubishi Mirage open class car. It'll be interesting to see how well that he progresses, especially he's starting 20th, it looks like, on the starting position so far. And as long as he keeps it on the road, I would bet that he moves up quite a bit. The kid's got some serious talent. It, it should be fun to watch to see how well he does. We'll be back with our special guest right after these messages from our supporters. Go. Five right short over crest into second small crest. 40. Pull left plus nips. Hi, this is Alex and Rihanna Gelsomino from Oz Rally Pro, Advanced Rally Training. Are you new to rally or have you been rallying many years? No matter what your experience, we can progress you further. Our classes are team training, driver pace note training or co-driver training that are tailored to each individual or team. Email osrallypro at gmail.com for further details. Well, welcome back to Open Paddock Rallycast. Preston Osborne, how you doing, man? Well, Happy New Year to you, Mike. Nice to uh, see your face and, of course, talk to you for the podcast listeners there. Well, it is awesome to see you. And yes, Happy New Year. Considering the new year, I got to ask you, though, how's fatherhood going? It's an adventure every day. You know, there's plenty of cliches out there about fatherhood and having a kid. To sum it up, it's just a lot of fun. It's been a nice reprieve being home for a few weeks from events because I get to spend a little extra time with the little guy. So Awesome. Bet he's grown like a weed, isn't he? 
Oh my gosh, he's he's almost a year. We're planning his one year birthday, and he's uh, pretty close to walking. So it's enough trouble trying to wrangle him in crawling right now because he's pretty mobile. I I can only imagine what's going to be like when he's walking and able to get over stuff a little easier. <laughs> oh, the kid proofing will end up having to become exponential at the house. <laughs> yes, yes, it's already a challenge. All right. Well, of course, I brought you on as I like to do uh, at the beginning of the year and talk about the new stuff that's going to be happening with the ARA. But first, let's reflect back on 2021 and how that season went for you, because even with COVID still lingering around, I think it was a pretty successful year. Yeah, yeah. But uh, first, you forgot a proper introduction. Uh, I saw you drinking something dark that I saw you crack open there a moment ago. Yes, that is true. I normally do start with, hey, what are we drinking? At first, I wasn't going to have a beverage. And then I last minute decided, you know what? I haven't actually had a good beer in a while. And so I opened up a Pray for Pow for powder. It's a winter stout by 10 Barrel based out of Bend, Oregon. Very nice. A nice, dark stout. Very good. What about you? What are you sipping on? I I don't drink much these days, but... uh... Uh, I got myself a uh, Lagavulin 16, so breaking out the good stuff for you. Ooh. I also have a nice green tea, and I have a bottle of water here, so I'm, I'm ready for the long haul here, Mike. <laughs> we, we usually go pretty long. Uh, I'm hoping to set the record for the first three-parter here, but we'll see. <laughs> oh, boy, you do know how I roll, and, and I've got my <laughs> coffee as well, so yes. uh, just in Necessary. case, we need Necessary. to recharge. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, so... 2021, pretty successful season, I would say. I I wasn't sure how it was going to end up. You know, the constant changes with the states and things like that. How are we going to deal with it? And it seemed like it rolled pretty well. Yeah, I think we got back to a little bit of of normalcy. You know, still coming into, out of, through, however you want to phrase it, a pandemic still affected some events and kind of how we did things. But it was at least uh, a little bit closer to what a rally season looks like. You know, it was unfortunate we lost STPR mostly unrelated to COVID, you know, had to downgrade them to regional, but actually just spoke with James yesterday and we're full strength proposed route, everything going into, to the season this year. So, but all said and done, it, it was great. We had good competition, you know, throughout. I think that was the big thing I was pleasantly surprised about. Uh, you know, of course, at the top of the field, the Subaru guys and Ken coming back in a Subaru and fighting it out was great to see. You know, some of the best competition we had was actually in in the regional classes and and the regional you know events and and not just for the championship overall, right. but there was quite a number of events where we had. 10, 15 seconds splitting the top three in some of those regional classes. And and as a fan of the sport, you know, just like everyone, I like the the shiny R5s and, and the cool cars like McKenna's, but everyone likes good competition regardless of what's racing. You have messaged me at times at events because, you know, you're obviously watching the rally safe stuff. And it's like, did you see so-and-so? <laughs> and then somebody farther down the field and just how close they are. Uh, that yeah. actually started out with, I think, Snowdrift. Some yep. of the guys there that were just really close and right up until the yeah. end. Oh, gosh, I remember who was it that had the spin? I have to listen to a, to a past podcast on that one. But anyways. I was actually as uh, going over the final championship points, you know, to finalize trophies and everything like that. And, and there was some anomaly in one of the results that just didn't make sense to me. And so I reached out to Nate because he helps us out with a lot of the data things. And, and he went, oh, well, that's because it was a dead tie. So the entire rally, two people ended up in a dead tie to the 10th of a second. No way. And it's horrible. I forget what it is off the top of my head now because it was relatively inconsequential. But yeah, we, we had a dead tie. And so they they split points is how it works. It's like, oh, okay. That makes <laughs> sense. <laughs> that is a rarity. Gosh, yeah, that's yeah. brilliant. Yeah. It goes to show just how close it can get sometimes. Absolutely. And, and that's fun. I'm, I'm loving that. And, and again, with, with us having great number of entries, it, it really promotes good competition and at the end of the day, yes, we're all having fun and, and we're all out there kind of doing our own thing, but uh, we are still racing and this is still motorsport. What did you learn most from this last full season with Rally Safe mm-hmm. and you being kind of in control of the reins of what's been going on? Well, it, it was definitely a bit of drinking from a fire hose, of course. I don't think there's much that can prepare you for a role like this. And, and I think I came in with, with pretty good re- expectations and really just wanted to get my feet under me for the first year. I think that was important being, you know, I feel like I didn't make any huge decisions, you know, as, as far as direction or anything like that. Yes. Bringing in rally safe was a pretty big decision and and the fire suppression systems can be argued that was a big decision, but you know, really I just wanted to get a better understanding of the role and kind of what it looks like and how it works. And I think the biggest takeaway I had from, from this year was just how even the very small decisions I make really affects everyone unequally. And yeah. I knew that, and and I knew that was going to be the situation. But, you know, I think in my head going into it, it was really, okay, we've got 
call it the national and the regional competitors. And, and really, of course, we're talking about budgets and potential there. Not only is it them, but really you could break even the national group into two or three different categories. And you right. can break the regional group into probably three or four different categories, but then decisions affect organizers. They affect sponsors. They affect volunteers. They affect the insurance company. I mean, pretty much every decision made, public or not, affects at any time, five or six different groups. And so it's just pretty nuanced on how it has to to be approached. And I, I like mind teasers, if you will. And, and so I certainly appreciate the challenge and hopefully every year it gets a little better. Well, like I said, I think it was a, a good season. Uh, I saw some great competition in multiple classes. That's been just some of the, the funnest stuff to see is when it does all work right. You know, there's battling out on the stages, not because of some rule thing or whatever, right? Yeah. That's what you want it to all boil down to. Just straight up competition at the end of the day, who's faster than the other one. And, and you know, of course, the big upgrade I had this year for at least the national series was rally safe. I, I hope at least you as usually watching from afar, um, it, it made such a big improvement to not only the scoring and accuracy on our end, but just the fan experience as well. Getting those pretty much instant scores and, and knowing that every stage is not going to suddenly go under inquiry because all the stage times were, <laughs> were a bit muddled. It was such a big improvement, not only for that, but then obviously the, the safety of the sport too. From my end, from media, just watching from afar that I find fun, similar again, the systems using the WRC and so what I would do there is seeing the split times and things like that you can see oh there was a moment there for somebody right you can tell yeah when somebody had maybe a spin or something's wrong because this split was off but then they're back again right so mm -hmm. it's like ooh, what happened there yep. and just added this level of intrigue and and excitement to something that we can't really watch live streamed right so right you right. still get that amped up you know uh way of following you get more of a story from it right yeah exactly yeah. i thought that was a, a huge improvement on our end mm -hmm. as far as just followers of the sport and then being an organizer it was interesting to now think about how okay that is now our primary for the the timing and when we go and use our traditional clocks and stuff that used to be the primary, that's now just as a backup. Mm -hmm. And not having to stress is that about that so much. <laughs> I mean, you still need to have a good backup regardless. Yeah. Uh, as someone that uh, puts together stage boxes and all that stuff, it was uh, definitely a different way to kind of go about things. And because now it's redundancy, I don't have to have redundancy in the redundancy. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, probably a lot of people don't realize, but running stage clocks like we did in the past usually had two, at least two clocks at every finish line. Mm -hmm. And so you always had that level of redundancy. And, and now you can take away that one level because we added another. And, and I'll tell you from the entire season, so the whole national season, eight events, however many competitors we had entered nationally, we had to manually enter three stage times. Wow. And that was, uh, two of them were the same car, and that was because they accidentally pulled, like ripped out the power cord out of their car. Oops. So basically, you know, rally safe unit doesn't have power at that point. And then the other time was, again, an issue with the antenna in the car. And so we're talking again, how, how many competitors over eight events and how many stages amongst those three stage times that we actually had to manually edit. Wow. That's impressive. That's got to feel good because it definitely wasn't that before. So very cool. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, from, like you say, the organizer standpoint, of course, from my standpoint, having faith in a system like that is huge. And like I said, the, the timing scoring part is amazing, but the safety part proved itself time and time again throughout the season. That's what I was going to ask next is, I mean, obviously you can't go into details of maybe some of the safety stuff, but you can probably give an overview of some of the situations that you ran into and how Rally Safe made that maybe better, uh, faster uh, responses and, and how to interpret that data. Yeah. And it's interesting because I, of course, see it on my end, actually using the tracking system and keep an eye on cars, but then also getting feedback from competitors has been huge too. And so from our end, from the very first event at Snowdrift, you know, we, we had an incident where car was rolled in the middle of the road, and I'm not going to call out who it is, but I remember who it is. The pictures are, are there. They shared it. Yes. And they're around a blind corner. Yep. And, you know, we're concerned that they're going to have a car. So first event system, you know, proves its worth, you know, from there, Olympus, we, we had had a pretty big incident and and had to respond to it and uh, for the for the people who don't know the average response time on a rally stage is usually about 15 to 20 minutes and that was my 
kind of big ask of bringing rally safe in was cutting that time down. Because of course, in any sort of life-threatening situation, minutes matter. And usually it's us getting the information to react to it, which is the delay in that time. Right. You know, Once we know where it is and what's going on, we can get there quickly. And at the Olympus incident, it was about four miles into the stage. But we got the information from you know the rally safe data so quickly that we had response on the scene in five and a half minutes. And think about that. That's four miles into a stage and somebody was there within five and a half minutes. Wow. So they obviously left to get to that point within a minute yeah. of the incident happening. And you know, they were in an ambulance and I think it was twelve minutes. And so again, it's it's just prove its worth over and over. And and even from a standpoint, you know, we talk about SOS's canceling stages, uh, which typically is going to be the end result. Right. But we had a situation at LSPR, car rolled, was completely blocking the road. It's relatively short in the stage. I want to say it's about a mile and a half. And so in Rally Safe, they threw SOS as they should because right. it was a complete road blockage. And so, you know, kind of our behind the scenes method is we get that information. You know, obviously we see it's an SOS. I can see whether it's manually triggered or whether it's automatically triggered. Right. And, you know, throughout the season, we had some accidental manual uh, activations. And so first thing I do is I look and go, okay, was it a crash? What was the G-force? You know, look at a couple of different things. And usually by the time I've looked at that data, the next car is on scene. And then at that point, I'm looking, are they confirming SOS or are they, you know, what what do they do at that point? Right. And they confirmed an SOS. So boom, you know, we send resources and, and they went into the stage, found the car was rolled, you know, we're able to get it moved out of the way. And we actually got it cleared and moving again pretty quickly so that it didn't delay the rally much. Because, of course, that's always a concern. Well, I mean, you're paying for mileage, right? Right, right, right. O- OTR we had with Wolfgang, similar situation. I was just going to say that. Yeah, we ran into that here. In that stage, we ended up getting back under competition. And I think it, it ended up affecting, what, three competitors? Really, it's just with us getting information so quickly, from a safety standpoint, it's huge, but also from a reaction standpoint where we can get the stage reopened, it's it's big too. So fortunately, you know, Wolfgang and, and Boyd were okay. So we got them cleared, got the car out of the way, and, and restarted the stage. That's just brilliant. Yeah. And yeah, that's a, that's a rarity. Yeah. And you're right. In most cases, you know, that stage is done until the next loop, if it's run again. Yep. Huge value. And I think we had two or three situations this year where we were able to get the stage running again, where in, in probably years past, it would have been canceled and scrapped. And, you know, you lose that mileage. And especially as more and more events are uh, having difficulty finding other roads and stages are longer and you repeat stages, if you have to throw a stage or or say even shut a stage down for competition for both runnings, you can lose a pretty big chunk of mileage. There's definitely an added cost to having a rally safe system, but the competitors seem to have taken to it so much. I've been hearing so how come my regional doesn't have rally safe? Yes. <laughs> yes, I, I have gotten those questions and, and we actually have started to talk to regional events because we have gotten requests for them. Yeah, I guess with enough entries, it can make sense at some point. Yeah, yeah. And, and ARA and in part, you know, USAC investing into our series helps subsidize a lot of the cost that goes to events. And so we've already kind of been looking at how we can further subsidize it and maybe start bringing it to super regionals and, mm-hmm. and you know, long term regionals. It's still an uphill battle for that because, like you said, it it is a let's call it a premium system. So there is a price tag associated with it. And as I've said many times, and I believe even on this podcast, I'm sensitive to keeping rally as accessible as possible. And with that, any cost that I bring to the organizers has to go somewhere. And usually that's the competitors. So that's something that I want to be mindful of. And, you know, the expectations at national events are different than regionals, which is part of why a system like Rally Safe is at national, not a regional right now. Now, I don't want to say it's because of the fire suppression system, but (laughs) I don't remember any car fires last year, which seems like a rarity over the last few years. I hate to say that, but for some reason we had like this bad of those damn things yeah i have no idea really why yeah well it's 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 the old uh, watch pot never boils right it's so, very true right now that we put extra protection in there then it's no longer needed and so i look like a fool for adding it right but, uh, <laughs> I, yeah i mean something like that is what is now considered a standard safety item for for so many different forms of motorsport yeah. and and the reality is most of the time you're several miles away from the closest first responder and so there just needs to be a little bit of risk mitigation there one thing i was thinking about with that and i don't know maybe i'm just straying off a little bit here but i'm like okay so these systems need to be reviewed every two years or whatever right and recertified there's only so many places i guess they can send the actual bottles to or whatever is there a way that with especially once you hit the two year mark with this 
have at events somebody that can inspect those? Yeah, we actually have had conversations with a couple of different companies for that. The challenge right now is everyone's system is a little different because sometimes they are unique to the system because ah. they're not just, you know, with a fire extinguisher, trigger mechanisms standard, mm. you know, they all activate the same way. You only have so many different types of element in them, you know, so that's pretty standard. Whereas when you get into fire suppression systems, you have electrical activation and they have different types of triggers. Ah. You have manual activation, different types of triggers. So the inspection of it is a little bit more specialized. And so some companies will not actually allow independent inspectors. Okay. They inspect it themselves. And so, you know, it's it's a little bit different, but, you know, I, I think when the rule first came out, there was a bit of an education process because mm-hmm. people had a misunderstanding of the cost and our basic systems are available for only a few hundred dollars. And and then also a misunderstanding of the inspection and recertification process and price. Mm-hmm. You know, if there's not so near you, yes, you do have to ship it, but 20, 30 bucks in shipping and, and usually your inspections are anywhere from 60 to a hundred dollars. It's relatively inexpensive when you figure it's a two-year window for that okay so not too bad that's good yeah because i remember just seeing yeah a lot of kind of stuff blowing up people just kind of not sure yeah it's uh i had people tell me that i scrapped their whole season which is never anything that i want to hear you know again they were thinking oh i'm gonna have to spend fifteen hundred dollars on this you know fia high-end system it's like no 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 you you can talk and and there's members of the community who stepped up and and offered discounts which you know was greatly appreciated and took care of their community which is what rally is all about right it certainly is. A lot of people helping out each other. Also, I just I saw a lot of people just, you know, people trying to understand how to figure out how to mount them. Yes. You know, and people reaching out and helping out there, oh, yeah. too. And I think in the end, I think it's all turned out pretty darn good. Well, let's talk about 2022 Bristol Forest Rally being added. So you're uh, heading down into the south, man. Yeah, I'm actually I'm really excited about it. Met with Dave, gosh, almost two years ago when he was first kind of kicking around, putting the event together and went looked at some of the roads and and talked with him. And, and he is the type of organizer that we're really trying to bring in and foster. Obviously, I love all the organizers we have, and, and a lot of them are, are experienced and, and know what they're doing. And it's really bringing up that kind of new young blood that's that's been the challenge, right? right? I mean, even me in this position, I'm not the guys in it before, but I'm the youngest person in this position by several decades, you know, yes, you over, over the last uh, <laughs> few heads. So it's, it's bringing in that fresh idea, right? We, we've got things established well. And so Dave's that type of person. He's got big ideas, mm-hmm. wants to grow that event. And bottom line is the roads they have there are absolutely phenomenal. We've been, been trying to bring him over for a couple of years and, and I'm glad that he could make the jump this year. And, and it's, I'm excited enough. I'm going to go down to it this year, awesome. which I usually don't go to the super regionals, but a, I want to give them as much help as they need to make sure the event's successful and be it's a cool area so i don't need an excuse to go down and spend some time there i've heard that the roads that they have available to them are just immaculate yeah similar character to say ohio tight twisty you know similar feel to the road surface is a bit different it's an organizer's dream where i think one of his eight or nine mile stages has one intersection that they have to worry about marshalling whoa <laughs> that, that that exists <laughs> yes. Yes. Apparently, uh, you just had to go to Bristol, Tennessee. Right. That event has a lot of good things going for it. And just support. Right. You know, his energy is infectious. Oh, it's fantastic. You know, we've had him on the podcast when he was just getting the thing started up. He's got a lot of support from the local community, yep. uh, reached out to them, and that's what you want. Yep. And, and we're just here to help however we can and foster it and uh, help that event grow. And I know he has aspirations of being a, a national one day. And so it's working towards that. And and that's really the mentality that I put towards the super regionals is the expectation of, you know, it's not just a bigger regional event. It's supposed to be our best regional events and, and supposed to be those that are kind of on, on the footstep waiting to be a national. Uh, and uh, as we look at the calendar moving forward. And then you also mentioned uh, kind of in passing uh, James Monks and his helping bring back STPR. It's a national event. And I yeah. have to say not only huge kudos to him, but the entire Wells Bureau and Tioga County community. They got a local representative that's involved with this. They got everybody in the room, including the DCNR. I've not seen, I think, that kind of 
community involvement to try and get something revived before. That was impressive. I think the great thing is it shows what the rallies bring to the local areas, right? It's not just people showing up and racing. There's hotel rooms, there's campsites, there's restaurants, grocery stores. You know, the amount of money brought into the local areas is has an impact for places like that. And, you know, hearing local business owners and, and that community talk about what the rally meant to them, not only from a financial standpoint, but also just from a fun standpoint. You know, there were families that talked about their kids going to the races. And I think the great thing is they see the value of it. And, you know, even for us, we're kind of changing the package that we have with organizers. And part of that is how to talk to your local areas and and say, this is what rally brings to a community and hopefully get more people on board with it so that we can grow the sport and grow the number of events or grow the events that we have. Just trying to keep the roads we have is hard enough, right? But yet, if you get even closer to that community and, and they, they begin to embrace you, yeah. you end up having more roads open, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> let alone keeping the roads that you have. Right. And I think it's it's very important to try and get that outreach as part of the job of an organizer. Well, and and like you said, for James, I mean, he did a, an amazing job. You know, there were plenty of times in roadblocks that he could have just threw his hands up and said, I'm done with it. I don't want to deal with this anymore. And and for him to continue to push like he did and, and to make the headway that he did. And now we see the results from it and have them back on the calendar for 22. It, it is solely a testament to him and his group. There is absolutely nothing we did other than offer him support. So it, it was all on him and, and he knocked it out of the park. That's awesome. The other exciting thing is just with so many regionals and whatnot, uh, especially in that Eastern and Central division, you now have three separate regional championships going into 2022, which makes a lot of sense because that was a hotly contested uh, Eastern <laughs> regional championship with all those damn events that you could have gone to. We had kind of kicked it around at the beginning of 21, but I wanted to see what it looked like at the end of 21, mm-hmm. just because, again, 2020 was such a, an odd year that there's really not a whole lot of yeah. anything we could base for decisions. So looking at it at the end of 21, you know, kind of with that mindset and then talking to organizers and and kind of getting some feedback from some different groups. And and it just made sense, you know, not only from the number of events, but also the territory. Yes, the West from a territorial standpoint is still very big. And, you know, hopefully one day we can get back to... You know, I think there's a Southwest region at one point and Northwest and and uh, hopefully we can work back towards that. But at the end of the day, like I said, at the beginning of this, really, I want to make sure we have good competition. And with the number of events we had, you had people racing for championships that never raced against each other. Right. And that's just not really something that you want to see. And from the national standpoint, there's the change of you only need to go out to two out of the three regions to qualify for at least the different classes. And so kind of lowers the burden a bit for the class entry. Overall, you still need to hit all three regions just because that's still something I believe in that you should race representing the entire U.S. and and that's part of it. Yeah, I remember, you know, Jeff Seahorn when he was going for, you know, his national stuff and he was driving his own truck and trailer all the way out to New England, right? Yep. Or, yep. Uh, you know, try to get at least the one round in there yeah. and, and make sure that he was eligible. And that's a long haul. Mark was a champion of that this year, right? Yeah. He's throwing in OTR for his last race to make sure that uh, he get those final points and was qualified. And it, it's a lot for our class champions. And I understand that. And so that's part of why we kind of tweak the process a little bit. You still got to hit two out of three because I do want to make sure that people fighting for champions championships are racing against each other. Yep. It's a big thing that I believe in that uh, I don't want to be racing some guy that I never actually see <laughs> <laughs> or, or know if I'm faster than him or he's faster than me. So right. that's part of why we kind of went to this structure and in that mindset. But in the overall nothing's changed. Right. They have to go through all the regions. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a little bit of a change because technically you could qualify for the national championship with only two races last year and, and moving forward, it'll be three because you have to hit all the regions. Right. Looking at the people who are qualified for the national championship this year, a vast, vast majority of them would still qualify under the new rules. So won't change a whole lot on the overall side, but will seems like open up competition quite a bit for the classes. And now I think the biggest news when it comes to points and things like that is the announcement of a power stage system for 2022. Let's explain that one a little bit. The impetus, why you came up with it. Well, came up. It's not like it's nothing, anything new. (laughs) 
I was going to say, I, I shamelessly stole it from the WRC. Well, but even before that, I think it was before the WRC, Australia has been doing it for a long time. Yep. Maybe they still do. They did it as their first stage mm-hmm. to make sure everybody was eligible for it before they crashed out or something. The mindset behind it, of course, is to add some intrigue and, and some competition towards the end of the race. And especially with Super Rally or Restart After Retirement still continuing forward, I have no intention of getting rid of that. But it it gives you still some points to chase yeah. if you come back for that second day. And so I, I think it's just interesting, again, as a fan of the sport, to know that there's still one stage at the at the end of the race or near the end of the race where you know that you're still going to have people pushing and, and fighting for points and another stage time to follow closely. I, I think it's good. So I'm, I'm excited for it. Like I said, it's going to add some interest. It's going to add some intrigue late in the events and and hopefully, again, foster some good competition and and uh, create some different scenarios for the points battles and give Nathan Usher some more uh, programming he's got to do. So. <laughs> right. <laughs> Oh, we love Nathan. He does so much yes. and it's it's great. Yeah, yeah. No, like I said, he's he's a huge resource for us and it makes my job easier. It makes I know Mary, our chief registrar for the series, her job easier because he, he does a lot of back end work for us, which which is good. Yeah, he, he's been quite the hero of of rallying, definitely on the back end. It's been good to see. Yeah. So how is the you know, I'll give you time to kind of promote it here, the the way the structure of this power stage is gonna work. So it's towards the end of the rally, where does it have to fit in as far as organizers concerned and how's that point structure going to work uh, for what they're going to get so from the organizer standpoint kind of the instruction i gave them is it really should be ideally in the last section so section for those of you who don't know are basically service to the end of the event or service to service you know that's a section i i want it to be a full stage so i don't want it to be a super special so so it's got to be a, a, a full length stage so either in the last section at minimum the last leg of course and from a from a point standpoint it's only for the national entries okay And it is, so overall, it's the top five. So five points for first place, four points for second, so on, Mm -hmm. down to the fifth. For the national classes, and this is including the combined classes, so, you know, two-wheel drive and LN4, the winner gets three points. So it's winner take all for for the classes. Oh, nice. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Just a little extra. I like it. I like it. Exactly. You gave me a deluge last night because we're recording this on the (laughs) the 10th. So on the 9th, the evening of the 9th, you released uh, seven different bulletins. Well, we're up to the 7th. It was was four bulletins I released. Oh, okay. You're right. All of them weren't last night. But you released four last night. Uh, I was catching up on some reading there. The one thing that everybody's always been talking about since last year is arrow, arrow, arrow. So give me a brief summary, I guess, of the arrow changes for 2022. So it's tough because change is maybe too strong a word. Really, it was down to us having to clarify because with Barry's car coming over last year, it really showed how weak our arrow rules were both in how they're written and how they were enforced. And so really what we did this year was take what, you know, was was kind of the intention after after Barry's appeal and everything last year and and said, "Okay, let's tie this up to make sure that what we envision is is fits within this box, if you will." And Barry's car as is fits into it. So it it does allow some pretty dramatic arrow, you know, from a bodywork standpoint. And and Subaru made a couple of minor changes last year as well. And and they would still fall within these rules as well. But, you know, even past that over the years, because of course I have the records of email and everything from communication with competitors since ARA existed. And there's been quite a few competitors who've wanted to run this wing and this spoiler and this slip mm-hmm. and different tweaks here and there, maybe not as dramatic as someone's like Barry's, but this now gives them very clear definitions as far as what they can and cannot do. We do still have the provision in there of if you're changing from OEM design, I guess is the best way to put it. You have to reach out to us just because we don't want to, excuse me, get into the situation of someone showing up for an event and us saying, no, this isn't going to work. Right. And that's what I was wondering also. It's, it's pretty technical. <laughs> if you go look at it, it's like, okay, from the center of the wheel, rear wheel, this many percent back yep. and, and stuff like that. And I'm like, going, wow, somebody's going to have to have a slide rule and some really good tape measures. And <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yes. Well, again, as competition has grown and car like Barry shows up, we just have to make sure the rules are yeah. much clearer because that's when they're enforceable. And But we still want to see those fun cars. That's the other yes. thing. It's like yes. we, we want to see it, but we still want good competition, right? Right, right. Well, and and a level of fairness, right? And mm-hmm. And we told a lot of people before Barry, no. Like I said, 
certain aspects that Barry has on his car. Uh, and no, I'm not talking about Subaru. I'm talking about other competitors, you know, that have wanted to put lips and different things on it. And we've told them no, because the interpretation of the rules up to that point was that they were not allowed. You know, after the appeal and in going through that process, it really showed us that the rules were maybe not as clear as they need to be. And so that's why, like you said, there there's percentages and measurements and, and if this, then that. When you're writing for as many different types of vehicles as we have within our series, that's just what you have to do. You know, I wish we could take the simplicity and cookie cutter like the FIA has where... Every car is homologated, though. Well, and all the cars look the same. Right. As far as they're all five doors and very similar wheelbases, and so you can standardize a lot of that. Mm -hmm. But, you know, a a WRX is different from an RX-7, which is different from a Jetta, which is different from, you know, a Fiesta. And so... Part of the diversity of our series, I think, is what makes it so interesting, uh, but it also creates a very unique challenge for writing rules for them. Makes me think of sports car racing. You know, I was talking to Kyle Tilley, and he's with Aero Motorsports and the 24 Hours Le Mans, and, and as well as doing, you know, the Rolex 24 and things like that, all that endurance racing, and they have to do balance of performance. Yep. Ugh. Yep. I, I can't imagine, you know, having to go through and the amount of data points they have to have to try and keep that balance is just ridiculous. And And part of the nice thing about having homologations is and and having everything controlled is you're able to make those sorts of changes much easier right and you know even from a software standpoint restrictors are great boost limits are great but if i had homologated software then it simplifies everything right. because i can set very very specific parameters at that point it's a challenge like i said i like it it's uh, a lot of kind of mind puzzles to work through and you know, like I said before, it's every decision I'm going to make. It's, uh, I mean, even the the spec real rule for uh, spec fuel words are hard. You know, for the <laughs> national open class, it's yeah, national open class. It's necessary just because of kind of what we were seeing, the fuels being blended, and and so it's kind of attacking that problem, but. Obviously, I get feedback from competitors saying this isn't fair to to the lower budget teams and and some things along those lines. But with how fast the cars are getting at the top of the field, we needed some way to uh, try and rein that back a little bit. And and certainly you can understand as an organizer, it's hard enough to find roads. But then when you have me knocking on your door saying your roads are too fast, <laughs> yeah, it's it's a tough balance. It's like and, this is the one road we can get. Oh wait, the straight's too long. Yeah. Ah. Yeah. Come on. <laughs> and, you know, we have some tools at our disposal, like virtual chicanes and things for Rally Safe. But, right. you know, we had to shorten Boyd Loop at Oregon this year. And yeah. and part of that was because when we were kind of looking at it and doing calculations for that stage, we're going to have to have like four chicanes in the first three miles or something <laughs> like that. And and that's uh, just artificially adding stage mileage at that point, right? Right. It really is. And, you know, it's just one of those unfortunate situations with some of the roads that are available. Mm-hmm. The, the very first part of it, is kind of twisty, but then there's all these straights. Yeah. And then you get to the near the Boyd Jump, where right after that, it's nice and twisty again, with a few more straights after, but not nearly as bad. Yep. And yeah. it makes sense that that's kind of the point that you would kind of start it from. And yeah. we, we would love to have more miles. And it also goes into the whole thing of, we've talked about on the show many times, is that unfortunately, insurance companies need some sort of metric. Average speed is their metric. Whether that is reality based on safety or not, they need a metric, and that's what they go by. Yeah, and it's it's a very easy number for them to look at, right? Mm-hmm. And and even from a person in my position, you know, looking at risk, when you have long straights, and I, you know, the the top guys are they're in the mid one twenties is where their cars top out, and they're going very very fast. But I'm not necessarily worried about them because they're professionals and they've got top line safety equipment, and and the expectations are a little bit different. It's the guys with the say higher horsepower Subarus that are relatively inexperienced, and and you know suddenly they're hitting speeds they've never hit before. That's really, to be frank, where the risk comes in. Yeah, you know maybe they're only at 110 miles an hour. But them at 110 miles an hour is is a much higher risk than the big boys at almost 130. Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. So you do bring up the the spec fuel, and I guess something you kind of told me a little bit about uh, last season is that you did find some different blends, and that's what I find interesting. Partially because I was listening to a podcast that that's one of my favorite ones is um, Dinner with Racers, and they did this whole thing about the history of some of the stuff at, at the Indy 500. Mm-hmm. And actually, if you go back in history. A lot of the cars that won the Indy 500 was because they had a fuel blend nobody else had. Yeah. 
It was actually all about the damn fuel, not the car, yeah. not the design of the car. It was the engine being able to handle that fuel, first of all, or yep. they did some blend that, you know, would cool it while it was, you know, burning and all that stuff. And so they just had superior fuel blends. And that was their key to winning by a large margin mm-hmm. over whoever was second place. It made me suddenly think of that yeah. when you were telling me that, yeah, we're finding some different blends out there. Well, and, and I think people underestimate how big a difference fuel can make, right? And and it's not just raw horsepower. You know, yes, you're capable of making more power some fuels than others from stability and, and detonation, of course, all, all the other different tuning magic that factors in, but even from a cylinder cooling aspect, you know, some fuels are better than others when it comes to cooling the cylinders, which can make a big difference with the the long-term power, let's say, that you can make on an engine. So the fuel that we chose, the VP 5.1, which is actually an FIA homologated R5 fuel, you know, we chose that not only for the R5s, of course, which uh, were supposed to be running an FIA fuel because mm-hmm. that's as homologated, but maybe weren't, but also for the overall class. And from my understanding, it's going to lower the horsepower of the top guys. I mean, upwards of maybe 30 horsepower. So it's yeah, significant. going to be a pretty significant change. And and uh, yes, it gives them a little bit more work to do. But for us, we're, we're giving them arrow and taking away a little bit of power. So that's just kind of how it goes. Yeah, it's kind of the evolution of things. So, you know, as more restrictions are put on, they eventually develop stuff that brings their performance back. Yeah. Uh, they find yeah. something, and, and that's their job. Your job is to keep them, you know, within a range, and their job is yes. to find a way to back above it. Yes. yes. You know, I was talking to Kyle about how, look, the current R5 cars are or as fast or faster than a 2016 top-level WRC car. Yep. I mean, yep. considering the restrictions that are put on the R5 as far as their development design mm-hmm. within the homologation rules, mm-hmm. that's impressive. Yeah, I mean, not not that we're uh, anywhere close to it, but F1 is another great example of that, of when we went into the hybrid era and, and everyone started freaking out because they said, oh my God, these cars are so much slower than, than the previous generation. And within two years, they were breaking track records again. Right. Race engineers, their job is to figure out how to go as fast as possible, uh, hopefully completely within the rules, not always. Uh, when you have people dedicated to that, they're always going to find some way to to get a little advantage or whether it's designing a new part or whatever it is, they're very good at their job. And so it's up to us to kind of try and limit them as much as we can. And again, you're just looking for a fair competition at that point, right? I mean, especially when you look at when we do have a uh, RC2 class, that's supposed to be homologated, and then they're using different fuel. It's like, okay, guys, come on. (laughs) You are supposed to be actually equal in this case. Yeah, it's going to be a bit of a wake-up call because from our standpoint, you know, we're coming into it with Doug Nagy as my technical director. We're really working on creating uh, fair competition, and obviously most of that is within the technical side of things. And uh, so we're doing, we're going to be doing a lot more scrutineering checks on the RC2s next year. Um, as that class is becoming more competitive, we want to make sure it's it's a fair field. And he was new last year too, right? Yeah. So you guys are both new. So yep. You, yep. you both have one year under your belt and that's it. I think I think he's got six months on me. I think he joined uh, late spring, early summer of 2020, but not not that much more time. Yeah, exactly. And 2020 was, well, 2020. So, you know. yes, yes. <laughs> a lot of us but, try not to count that year. <laughs> you know, the, those who don't know, it's it's uh, there's just a lot more scrutineering requirements when it comes to cars like that, mm-hmm. because everything is so specific. So even the pop off tester, uh, which is, you know, from the FIA that we got last year, that was almost two thousand dollars. And uh, as we add more tools to the toolbox, if you will, you know, that's that's the type of investment that needs to be made to to keep those guys in check. But that's just the reality of it. At the same time, the interest in coming over here from Europeans and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And, and then similarly with the, uh, the AP4 coming out of Argentina, those guys coming over. Oh, that, that's an R4 kit. A little different than the AP4 Oh, kit. R4. Yeah. Sorry. But it's just impressive that we're getting this level of attention uh, that they want to come and compete here. Yeah. And so, we, again, another reason to invest in the scrutineering for that class. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's as teams come over, they want to make sure what they're doing or where they're competing is fair, because if they come over in a, in a car that they know is homologated within the rules and they're racing against someone who's in the same class, but it's not, that's going to leave a sour taste in their mouth and they're not going to come back and they're going to tell other people to not come. And, you know, there's many different ways to grow the sport. And I think it needs to be approached from multiple directions, which is what I'm trying to do. And so as much as I'm trying to grow the 
regional side of things, the national also needs to grow. Well, a big part of it we see is that class, the RC2 class. And, you know, the Argentinians coming up, they were a wonderful group to work with and, and they enjoyed their time at Oregon. So thank you, Mike. So I believe they're doing most of the national season this year and, and actually talking right now about bringing a second car and a second driver. Wow. That's awesome. That's really good news to hear. What other changes, uh, I guess, in car class stuff? I was reading up a little bit that uh, allowing more than two rotors for rotary engines and then, I guess, uh, sequentials in NA4. All right. So I am throwing this out to all of your viewers out there because we got more requests than I can count to allow three rotors. Really? And so I swear if there's not a three rotor competing in our series by the end of the year, (laughs) I'm going to be very disappointed. No, you know, we, we... have talked with quite a few different competitors about kind of the rotary platform. And of course, it's a small but passionate group. Mm-hmm. They want three rotors. So here we are. You know, we also just had to do some minor cleanup work with the rotary rules in general, cleaning some some inconsistencies up and things like street porting and, and a couple of changes like that we wanted to allow. So it is a much more free class, if you will, if if they want to build whatever they want to build. So have at it. Then, yeah, the NA four-wheel drive class, obviously you and I know that it goes back to the days of open light, and that was considered kind of a regional and, and a very accessible class. Uh, you could build a car for pretty inexpensive. But as the class has grown, you know, it is an open class. Exactly. And so we're seeing six cylinders. You know, I remember out here, yeah, so you got six cylinders, but I remember like a, a four-cylinder, like full-on race motor, like full-on <laughs> Forged piston, you know, all the stuff. I think it was Stephen Red uh, yeah, did yeah, that in yeah. what was the Zebra car out here. As now Spencer Crab drives that car now with a different motor. Yep. But that race motor that was in that thing, it screamed and hauled ass. It was like, oh, yeah. there was nobody near yeah. that car at the time. I have seen a dynograph of a four cylinder 98 Impreza making 200 wheel horsepower. Um, <laughs> And so it's possible. Of course, it takes a lot of money, but we're seeing more and more people willing to invest into that class. Mm-hmm. And so uh, sequentials have always been allowed. Again, it's a it's an open class, but we're adding a 100-pound weight penalty to putting the sequential in just because we still want to keep that class as accessible as possible. Mm-hmm. Yes, you can still have or put a sequential in. There's just a weight penalty with it to kind of balance that performance a little bit. Like you said, the, the road racers love to do it, and there's more balance of power than people think in rally. It's just in uh, different forms. It seems a lot, and again, this is just maybe my ignorance, is a lot of solutions seem to be around weight to try and uh, create equality. Is it because you got to start braking sooner, brakes get hotter, all that stuff? Is that kind of how that balances out? Yeah, you know, weight is going to affect everything on the car. Acceleration, handling, braking. And so it's it's a easy to enforce change on a car. So all you need is a set of scales and, and you know, you can enforce it. So relatively easy on a competitor side and, and pretty easy from a series and an event side. Sounds logical to me. And like I said, I've, yeah. I've seen it many times, but it makes me always wonder, like, is there ever a point where it becomes a consequence? You know, like uh, now they're starting to burn through tires like crazy and they're doing stuff. And now it's kind of working against them too much. Yeah, you know, you can't get too extreme for weight penalties. So say I, for one reason or another, I say you got to throw 500 pounds on this car. At that point, you have to start to be concerned about cage design, Mm -hmm. you know, the rest of the chassis. And, and it's just like, if we were to bring say WRC cars over here, you know, if you have to add four or 500 pounds to, to that car to make it legal, well, that's a homologated cage. So a, you can't change the cage and B, you know, you may need to take a closer look at the forces you're going to see in, in a crash. And as you add weight, you're adding force and that's Mm -hmm. not good. That makes perfect sense. And it multiplies. So again, it's, it's how do you approach to writing rules with so many different cars and, Mm -hmm. and make it as fair as possible. And, and usually weight is a relatively easy change. And you know what, if you want that sequential, just make your co-driver go on a diet. Yes. It's simple. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. That's that's all it takes. Actually, I guess it brings up one other question when it comes to weight. When it comes to the weight, can they kind of put it anywhere to help balance the car? Yeah. So that's the advantage you would have for, I mean, really any car build right. is not always feasible, but you should always shoot to be underweight so that you can put the ballast where you want it. Right. So that's why co-drivers usually see are as low and as far back as possible. Exactly. Because it's a necessary weight, whether the drivers think it is or, or not. And so you might as well put it where you want it. I could just get a recording of those notes and not have to have a code. <laughs> <driver. laughs> 
Exactly. Siri's not up to that yet, but I'm sure give it a couple of years. Being a co-drivers, uh, which makes me think of Recky. Mm-hmm. 2021 was not a good year for Recky in the ARA. Oregon Trail wasn't even immune of, you know, stuff. There's been obviously some changes in penalties for that. I'm, again, as an organizer, 100% all for it. That is one of the biggest risks when it comes to us keeping roads, is that road's open to the public at that time when those notes are being made. And to have some of the incidents I've seen happen are, are some of them are ridiculous. Some of them are just accidents. They do happen, to be fair. But some of the stupid things I've seen on Recce, and you guys have uh, come up with not only increased enforcement, but I noticed with Snowdrift, a new app that you're going to be doing to help monitor Recce. Well, there's a few different challenges that you have when not only having Recce penalties, but also then enforcing Recce procedures, speed limits and stage open times and direction and that kind of thing. And, And so like many of the issues we've talked about, it's so many different kind of approaches that you have to make to, to try and hit all the targets. And from, from a penalty standpoint, you know, the feedback and certainly I saw it was do some teams care if we find them a hundred bucks for speeding on recce? I mean, what's a hundred bucks to them, yep. right? Whereas some of the smaller teams that, that can make a big impact. So is a bit of a, a unequal penalty, I guess you could say from, from that standpoint. So, you know, we, we increased the fines first and foremost, uh, pretty much doubled them. And then also we added championship points as, as the penalty for speeding a second time within an event. So uh, it gets pretty severe pretty quickly, but as you kind of alluded to, and, and I'll be much more direct, is we had three events this year either lose stages or come very close to losing stage roads because of behavior on recce. And as public safety, of course, is paramount and and safety of, of the competitors is paramount, but when, when it starts affecting events the way that it has, it's just unacceptable. And so it's something that we had to take very, very seriously. And, and obviously working with you guys, event organizers and figuring out how to approach it. That was kind of the end result of that. As far as how we enforce the penalties, that's where we had to get a bit more creative. Mm-hmm. When I was at OTR, yeah, I, I know I talked with you about it, but I actually had, I think at that event, two different tracking devices with kind of different solutions. One was an OBD2 dongle, another was yeah. a standalone unit. And, and just to see how they worked and the connection and you know, ultimately what was enforceable and what wasn't. And we tested a couple of different apps, but ultimately what we landed on, and I don't know if it'll be announced by the time the podcast comes out, but Rally Safe has actually developed a tracking app that goes on competitors' phones. And so the requirements of it, of course, they'll have to have it on their phone. Uh, it'll have to be active during during recce. And, and I think the nice thing about having something that's app-based is it also gives them feedback. That's what I was about to ask, because... I did my first ever road rally this last year, and it was mm-hmm. interesting because it used the Richter app, and it actually gave me immediate of, of was I too fast yep. or too slow for that time section? Yep. So even without cell service, because your speed is GPS-based, right. it knows with when you're within this GPS range that you need to be at, say, 35 miles an hour as the speed limit for gotcha. rookie. So it knows you have to be at 35. So if you are over 35, uh, it does flash a warning to you. And we'll share more of the details of specifically how it's going to be enforced, but you'll have to be over speed for X amount of time. And so, you know, right. if you're 36 miles an hour for one second, you're not going to get Right, and you're going down a hill. And, you know, yes. I mean, th- yes. these things happen that, that are not yeah. intentional. Yeah. That, that's not the point I- of this. Having done a lot of recce, I can tell you there's plenty of times I glance over and go, Cam, slow down. And uh, and and generally, I like to think we were very, very well behaved on recce. Just coming from an organizer standpoint, I knew the consequences of it. So mm-hmm. Cam and I always try to be well behaved. And I know most competitors try and do the same. But I, I think also going to be a tool for you guys as organizers to be able to go to landowners, these communities and say, you know, they don't just get free reign on this day. Right. They have to have this tracking app. We know what they're doing and, and the speeds they're going. And so, yes, there will be traffic that day, but it should be controlled and, and they should be behaving better. So, you know, there's uh, not too much I want to give away because there's a couple of fail safes in there. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's it's not as simple as hiding your phone or, or doing what whatever. So right. from working with Rally Safe, uh, it seems like it's it's relatively foolproof and something that's going to be enforceable for us. And at the end of the day, it's also going to be equal to everyone. I even saw it last year where maybe recce penalties are unequally enforced because somebody knows somebody or whatever the case is and oh right. And that's 
not possible, basically, with this system. Right. So you get a report at the end if of you're, it. If you're tracking, you can see somebody's regularly over this. Well, and you get a report at the yeah. end. You know, we will set the parameters as far as what is considered a penalty. And if somebody does it, we get a we get a report on it. Here's a question. With that app, and I think in RallySafe as well, and, and I just want to make sure that this is an option because I'm not sure if we had it on or, or as a feature before. We've got a couple of specific places that I can think of at Oregon Trail, and I'm sure other events have, where we have specific quiet zones mm -hmm. because there is that one person that lives on that road. Yes. You know, it's after the stage end, but it's during that transit part that we got to be extra careful around them because they will raise hell about anything. Is there that ability to add those specific zones into this app or, or even in RallySafe as well? Yeah, so... Rally safe, it's certainly possible. We actually had a few events use them this past year. So uh, we had quiet zones is probably half the number of events. And of course, from a quiet zone standpoint, rally safe doesn't know how quiet you're being, right. but you can make it, you know, a 20 mile an hour speed limit, which generally the cars are going to be pretty quiet at 20 miles an hour. Right. But yeah, so that that is certainly within the rally safe units. The nice thing for using the rally safe app for, for recce is also because it's using the same software platform, all of the zones, chicanes, everything that we put in the rally safe software will also be on the app. Yeah, stage starts, stage finishes, all that stuff. I mean, when, once you've built it, it's automatically basically imported into the app Correct. because it's the same. Correct. That's that's actually really cool from not having to reinvent it. Yeah, and, and that was, again, part of the approach was got to look at everyone. And so I didn't want to put more work on the organizers. So finding a solution that was either very simple for them or didn't add any extra work is ultimately what I was after. And and uh, this is the end result. It just so happened that RallySafe was working on, on something and kind of the stars aligned. And I believe Snowdrift is going to be the first event that uses this app. They were planning on rolling it out at, I believe, a Tasmania event in March, but we are beating them to the punch. <laughs> so so we get to be kind of a little bit of the test platform for them. Yes, yes. Uh, but that's cool, though. Uh, like I said, I, I think that's the, the simplicity of being able to use the existing zones that you already have in there for Rally Safe. And then we just need this kind of monitoring. Yeah. We just do. Yeah. And I will say, you know, kudos to when we had Easy Track. That was an option that we had because the devices were portable. They could put them in the recce car. And that's something we lost with Rally Safe. Well, even the second version of Easy Track that was going to roll out, we we're going to lose that functionality. Oh, right. Yeah. So even back then, we we're going to have to come up with another solution. Because with enhanced antennas and whatnot, it wasn't portable anymore. Correct. It, it needed to be 12 volt power. Other stuff that uh, came out in the bulletins. So, what I haven't seen mentioned yet that is kind of disappointing, actually, is just just a quality of life change. MTCs. I was just going to mention that one, actually. The competitors hopefully know, but you can, of course, check in early and declare a time for an MTC. Now I simplified it even more as long as you beat the target time. You don't have to declare a time. Whatever time you check in is your time. And as long as you're not late, there's no penalty. That is so nice. It really is. Like, yeah. just, just don't be late. Yep. But as long as you're just there, that makes, first, you're just not stacking up a bunch of cars at the end of the day. People want to just they want to pack up and not, not necessarily go home at the end of the day. Um, I guess at the very end of the event, that actually makes scoring maybe a little bit easier for at least the, yep. uh, getting the time cards if you do need to do some comparisons and things like that. Also, that rule goes into effect for regionals as well, where we're still doing traditional scoring, right. which I remember doing that with the Oregon Trail uh, Mike Nagel rally, and which is a regional. And yeah, I was like, man, if I could just get those those time cards, as, instead of people waiting until their minute, yeah. get them over there, they can start working on them and, and a huge help for those. There, there was a bit of pressure on the co-drivers to making sure you get the time right, which I guess is true at every control. But the difference is you're not able to base it on the car ahead of you, right? Mm -hmm. It's kind of a gamble. And so makes it easier on competitors, makes it easier on the volunteers, mm -hmm. because all they got to do is make sure they're writing down the current time of day. And then, as you alluded to with scoring, now we know there should not be at least minimal, minimal penalties for the final MTCs, uh, whether it's the end of the first leg or the second leg. Mm -hmm. And so uh, we'll speed up that process a bit as well. And and fortunately, with Rally Safe being added to the national events this year, our national scoring went much smoother and also much more timely. And this will only help that process even further. Whoever gets to work MTC, boy, your job just got a hell of a lot simpler. And yes, a stress off the co-driver for sure. Yes. They don't have to worry about all that. The the traditionalists were against it. And I will say that I was initially like, uh, uh, what are we really doing? I mean, what's the whole point of checking in early to rallies? It's it's to keep the event on time and to keep right. the consistent gapping. At the end of the day, that doesn't matter. Yeah, I, I guess the way I've always seen you know, the traveling kind of circus that we have is cars being in order 
they have to be in that order and through their time because they set up the speed factors so people don't overtake each other on stage. All these things are designed just so it runs smoothly. Yes. That's why you get penalized because you're messing up the smoothness of the rally. Yes. And I totally agree with it and it makes total sense, but it's like, it's the end of the day. You just want to go get dinner. I want to get dinner. (laughs) You're going to be back in the morning for the next stages. It's just like, come on. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. I I understand what the traditionalists are about, but again, if if you look at it, these are sprint stages with a transit in between. This is not, you know, old fashioned rallying way going way back. So we're, we're already a long ways away from that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I guess uh, if we want to have people doing math puzzles at the end of the event or the end of the leg, then you heard it here first, 2023, you'll have a Sudoku puzzle for an extra championship <laughs> point at, at the end of the I leg. How's it. that? <laughs> I just started doing Sudoku stuff just like a, a couple of months ago, found just, I yeah. oh, I'm going to try these things and they're kind of fun, but kind of hard. Yeah. That would be hilarious. That's my, my favorite, like time waster on planes. Yeah. Is Sudoku. Yeah. The other thing that you guys uh, are, are, are getting, you know, at least put it down in your kind of your documentation of stuff though, is getting more on the, the, the safety testing stuff <laughs> for, especially like the new competitors as well as the existing ones. And how's that been going? I guess all the new uh, safety protocols and, and training up on that versus kind of everybody was just kind of expected to know that stuff and weren't kept up to date i guess i would say yeah there's no retesting of it right yeah when i was a competitor i was very surprised that some of the people around me really misunderstood how the safety rules worked and by safety rules i mean triangles okay signs you know that kind of thing Mm -hmm. it was very surprising to me and you know as i worked my way up in the field i would almost argue that the newer competitors knew better because they had just been through the novice briefings you know maybe paid a little closer attention to things because it was all new to them. And so I I saw a need to kind of retest and make sure people know what they should be doing when either they crash or stop or come upon another competitor. And we are each other's first responders out there. And so we need to make sure we know what we're doing to take care of you know, other competitors. And so it's a simple 15 minute open book test. It's, it's made to make you think it's, it's a lot of scenarios and, you know, a couple of specific rule references, but it's really made to make sure you know what you should do in a situation like that. And as a novice competitor, you know, they don't have to take it until they've been through a couple of events. I don't expect them to know it on their first event. And so they've got to sit through those novice briefings with me. But after that, to get rid of your novice designation on your license, you have to pass the test. And then for every other competitor, you have to pass the test once a year. And so I I have gotten positive feedback from it. You know, we rolled it out kind of midway through last year. Mm-hmm. Uh, I got a lot of positive feedback. We tweaked a couple of questions for, for this year. And kind of the plan is we'll change, you know, question or two every year just to keep it fresh. And, and you know, say we have some issues we see this year, then probably be a question on next year's test. Sure. It, it, it's been great. And it maybe created more work than I expected for me between chasing people around to make sure they take it and and that side of things. But I think it's a net positive for everyone. Well, and I think that's some of that confusion is one reason I think we've gone to the SOS from a Red Cross and people not understanding that the proper usage of those things and it's like okay this is can be used in, in multiple scenarios and is this something that volunteers and or organizers can take as well yeah i mean it's it's the link is there on on the bulletin you know up on the website and it's available to anyone and uh, i've already seen a few organizers take it uh, we make our stewards take it because they obviously should know the safety rules so it's available to anyone you know if, if you want to test your knowledge certainly do it and and you can take it as many times as you want so you get them all right you know we we actually have separate testing that's not public for things like our tech people. Uh, we have a test for our stewards. We're, we're talking about developing a test for the clerks of the course, just since they really have to have a, a good understanding of the rules. So testing, while I'm sure it scares people with thoughts of school and, and standardized testing and everything, it's a very simple way to make sure that people know the procedures that need to be done. And, and kind of the low-hanging fruit for us were those safety procedures. And so that's why we just need to make sure everyone knows what they're doing. Testing to me, maybe as I've gotten older and maybe so far away from school is that it's just a training opportunity. It's not absolutely maybe because I see it a lot in what we do in IT for my day job. It's not about I got you. It's about, mm-hmm. wow, here, here's an area maybe we need to focus maybe more attention on, on people's understanding of things. And it, it's not just about the person getting it wrong. As multiple people maybe get a certain thing wrong, it might show that actually it's a defect in how we're communicating. Yep. Right? It's yep. not wrong with them. Maybe it's wrong with us. Yeah. And I yeah. think it's just a good thing. There's no other way to know that you're doing it right than maybe to test. Yeah. And, and that's actually kind of my 
approach to to management a lot of this as a whole is if something fails it's not your fault what did i do to not either give you the tool the training or or the knowledge to solve that situation and you know you talk about it being a learning opportunity if you look at our test a majority of the questions actually reference the specific rule that this question is based on and so if you don't know it it gives you the answer to go look up and uh, maybe secretly so people actually read the rule books that we spend so much time writing but you know that that's helpful for them oh kitty cat <laughs> Lulu decided she'd come visit for a second hey lulu he's very fluffy at this time of year yes that <laughs> is got a winter coat a lot of fur it's like my, i have a i have a lab husky mix and she has a, a ball of fur the rest of the year but i'm sure she appreciates it during the winter because i can't get her inside when it's snowing <laughs> she's just she will not come inside when it's snowing she loves to just lay in the yard uh yeah i bet yeah well it's the only time she's at the right temperature <laughs> yes exactly I think we covered really. Am I missing anything as far as rule changes and stuff for 2022? I think we got most everything covered there. I think you hit about everything. Of course, we kind of talked about it. Rally Safe is here to stay for for moving forward, so that's a big one. I think that's about it. You know what I hate? Big, bulky, underperforming batteries. Lighten your load with Performance Battery from Melee Design Firm. They have time-tested solutions for your race car, rally car, or even your daily commuter. Make sure you check us out at MeleeDesignFirm.com, a proud sponsor of the Open Paddock Rallycast since 2020. And thank you to our supporters, Melee Design Firm and Oz Rally Pro. And remember, if you'd like to help support the Open Paddock Rallycast, we've got a donate button now on our website, openpaddock.net. We'll be back soon with a new episode that I think you're really going to enjoy. Until then, good luck to all our friends competing, officiating, volunteering, or doing media at Snowdrift. I'm your host, Mike Shaw. Thanks for listening. Kitty cat. Uh,